Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm Julie Fetty, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Denise Brennan about her new book, Life Interrupted, Trafficking into Forced Labor in the United States. Denise Brennan is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Georgetown University, and she is also the chair of that department. Welcome, Denise. Thank you, Julie. I wonder if you could begin, Denise, by telling us a little bit about your your background, your research interests, a little bit of a biography, if you would, for a few minutes. Great. Um, Well, thank you for having me on. Um, My background is as an anthropologist um, uh, working with a group of sex workers in the Dominican Republic who... Um, were peer educators, real leaders in their community to fight for their workers' rights. Um, So I definitely see this book um, about extreme exploitation of workers in the United States as continuing my interest in um, workers' protections and workers' empowerment. Okay, so how how um, how did you come to write Life Interrupted? In a sense of what were the main arguments that you wanted to make? Well, um, I was finishing up that first book on the Dominican Republic, which is called "What's Love Got to Do with It," and around the year, um, well, in the late nineteen nineties. Um, the United States was drafting legislation um, to protect trafficked persons in the United States, which eventually was enacted in 2000, and it's called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which is the TVPA. And because of different working groups I was in um, with human rights lawyers regarding sex worker rights uh, protections, um, I was, I I really had a front row seat to how the TVPA was being crafted um, and the fights over leaving um, sex workers protected. In other words, people who had um, knowingly migrated to the United States to sell sex Um, but their situation of work turned into uh, a situation of um, exploitation, Um, would they or would they not be eligible for protections under this new piece of legislation? So I was very fortunate to be part of those working groups and to watch these ideological battles unfold. And it became very clear to me that as an anthropologist, my intervention could be to see how people um, fair after forced labor, after trafficking, if they were going to be entitled to some social benefits um, as guaranteed under the TVPA um, and chose to resettle in the United States, how would their lives unfold? And that's um, how I came to um, think about this book as focusing on life after trafficking. 
Okay, and indeed, most of the thrust of your book is about life after trafficking. Um, but before we, we get into that, um, I wanted to ask you about the TVPA and the, um, and the people that you were able to meet and interview. Um, this is an ethnography in many senses of the term. Um, you, you meet uh, many, many people, victims, organizers, advocates. Um, and I wonder, is uh, your research here for this book focused around people who did obtain that kind of protection with the T visas, I believe, or do you uh, enlarge the uh, research scope to include other victims of trafficking? Right. So, so a quick overview of what trafficking is. Trafficking, um, the term obscures what's going on. It's really about migrant exploitation. Um, and the TVPA protects migrants who uh, come to the United States, some with visas, some without, um, and find themselves in a situation of what the U.S. government calls severe exploitation. Their cases have to rise to a situation which the U.S. government defines as having included force, fraud, or or coercion. So these workers... um, cases uh, need to be proven to be somehow extraordinary. Um, And the TVPA allows for a new visa to be given out called a T visa or trafficking visa uh, to these um, uh, non-U.S. citizens so that they can stay in the U.S. um, after their situation of exploitation. The dirty little secret about T-Visas and the TVPA is that although the legislation allows for 5,000 visas to be given out every year, and it is the year 2014, and the legislation passed in 2000, so we've had 14 years to give out 5,000 visas each year, up to this point only... 3,369. In other words, under 4,000 T-Visas have been given out in total to date. So, and we'll talk, Julie, about why that is. Um, But I wanted to focus the book on these, you know, rare recipients, frankly, of the T-Visas. But at the same time, talk to other migrants who were... um, abused, who did experience exploitation in their workplace, um, and also those in migrants' rights communities who are fighting for their rights, in order to get a full picture of just how commonplace exploitation is uh, in workplaces that are low-wage and generally unprotected and that have a number of migrants working there. Okay. So let's start with your subtitle, Trafficking into Forced Labor in the United States. In your introduction, you do elaborate quite a bit on what is trafficking? What is forced labor? Not necessarily the same thing, right? One can be trafficked, but not put into forced labor, right? One can be in forced labor without having been trafficked. Can you, can you elaborate a little on that for us? 
Um, well, actually, I talk about trafficking into forced labor to emphasize that trafficking is about um, labor exploitation. Um, there has been there have been many terms to describe um, this situation of severe exploitation. The U.S. government and some NGOs around the world talk about this as modern day slavery, and I'm very clear that in the United States, um, this is not slavery. Uh, slavery is not the law of the land. It's not encoded in a race-based enslaved um, law. We don't have fugitive slave courts. We don't have uh, you know, fugitive slave patrols. One is not born into this situation of um, exploitation. Um, and one does not wait to be sold at any moment. These are all characteristics of what we know to be chattel slavery. Um, and this is why I'm very careful in the opening of the book to set up what these terms um, in, you know, in different laws, both international protocols and our own um, TVPA here in the United States, what these terms um, capture and, and what they leave out. And I use the term trafficking because the U.S. government uses it, but I um, also use the term forced labor to remind readers that this is about a labor issue. Mm-hmm. And so um, trafficking does forcibly involve undocumented or clandestine Migrants, is that correct? Right. Well, the U.S. law um, allows for protects um, foreign workers that come to the U.S. who otherwise, once found, would be automatically um, considered criminals because they're not in the United States uh, legally. And in the past, before the law, would be summarily um, detained and or deported. Um, So the U.S. government talks about this as being victim-centered, that by providing a new visa and some social benefits, much like those that refugees receive, that we um, begin to recognize these exploited migrants, these exploited workers, um, as deserving of... um, some form of assistance since the situation is, um, is extraordinary. And for forced labor, um, that can also involve, uh, U.S. citizens, correct? Um, it's not just, uh, limited to undocumented workers. Well, U.S. citizens don't need a T visa, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're eligible for all different kinds of in theory, although our social safety net is quite tattered these days, in theory, U.S. citizens do not need, um, a, you know, a T visa or the um, the social benefits that c- come along with the trafficking care um, regime. Um, individuals, uh, no matter their immigration status, obviously are exploited in. Um, a range of labor sectors. Um, And the TVPA uh, addresses specifically um, those who have been um, uh, abused in the sex sector 
and also um, anyone under the age of 18. So it provides prosecutors, it provides um, attorneys with um, some pretty uh, strong legal tools to prosecute prosecute the uh, the abusers or the traffickers. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you really, as an anthropologist, you start out your book with stories stories of real people: Maria, Carmen, Flo, Eva. Can you tell us how that approach, the ethnography of uh, lived experience, then impacts your other analysis, the analysis we're talking about, about immigration policy? Yes. um, I deliberately opened the book with a series of stories of the women you just mentioned that have nothing to do with their time in forced labor to really underscore that um, the challenges that those who have lived through forced labor um, face, much like their migrant neighbors, friends, co-workers, and that other than their paperwork um, that allows them to stay in the United States, their, their T visa, that their neighbors and co-workers and friends wouldn't necessarily know that they've been trafficked. Um, And this was a profoundly political move on my part to step away from the sensationalism that often characterizes discussions in media reports on trafficking. Um, There is a chapter in the book, as you know, on life in forced labor to really um, interrogate why it is that some individuals Uh, don't walk through, for example, an open door and to think through the level of fear that accompanies being undocumented in the United States. Um, But other than that chapter, I wanted to show um, just the everyday challenges, um, what I call everyday life work of um, composing a life in the U.S. after having lived through a situation of forced labor and um, and how that is similar and different from um, the challenges that face other migrants. So tell us about that, that uh, continuum you mentioned of coercion. Um, what is it to find an open door, but to not walk through it out of fear, out of threat, out of lack of knowledge. Can you elaborate a little bit more about the different situations you encountered with the people you met? Right. Well, I argue that trafficking into forced labor um, needs to be seen on a continuum of everyday forms of migrant exploitation. In other words, there's definitely in the United States where Migrant exploitation has been a part of doing business in certain low-wage work sites, like in agriculture and in domestic work, such that there definitely is a continuum of migrant labor abuse, and trafficking is is at one end of of that continuum. Um, In this way, trafficking is preventable um, if we were to... 
um, close the FLSA loophole, the Fair Labor Standards Act loophole um, that excludes migrant workers and domestic workers or care workers in the home from certain labor protections. Um, If we were to increase um, health and safety in a number of protections in a number of low-wage workplaces, if we were to regulate international recruiters on the amount of debts that workers accrue, that we would begin to um, see a reduction in those who are in severe situations of uh, forced labor. Um, And again, this, this preventability of trafficking is also what distinguishes it from from slavery right mm-hmm. um, and with this continuum in mind I traveled the country um, not only to meet the those who had T visas um, but also uh, the migrants rights leaders and um, worker rights leaders in their communities and to see um, who's uh, also working and living with extreme um, conditions, but who may not qualify for the T visa. So to answer your question about um, why some people qualify for a T visa and why they don't, um, you know, this has been, this has really confounded some of our country's best attorneys. They have to prove that the worker feared retaliation in an extreme way. They have to prove that the worker was um, coerced. Um, and I was haunted by um, an image I had of a number of women in particular I met who were in domestic work, who lived and worked in what I think of as apartments in the sky, um, literally just apartment buildings on the Beltway around the Washington, D.C. area, the suburbs of D.C., um, They worked in these apartments that remained unlocked when their employers went to work by day and they were told to not walk out the door and they didn't. So I really was trying to think through um, what kept them there. For example, a woman, Elsa, from Africa who, um, who was told, don't use the phone, don't walk out the door, um... And she didn't. And so her attorney had to prove that Elsa um, was experiencing this form of force, fraud, or coercion, um, such that she was terrified to to leave. Um, and there are, I mean, in Elsa's case and in many others' cases, there are some textbook um methods of control that their employers slash abusers use, such as they take their workers' passports. They limit the amount of money they may have at any given time, including even if they do give them um, some wages. They severely limit um, any kind of contact that they may have with the outside world. Um, They also may not 
allow the workers to have seasonally appropriate clothes. So what happens, Julie, is workers could walk out the door, but the question then becomes to what are they walking? They have no plan, no passport, no money, no contacts. In some cases, they don't even know literally what state they're in. Um, And so they stay. And I believe that they stay not because they're consenting to this severe exploitation, but they're, they're, they stay as they begin to work out a plan. They stay hoping to get their passport. They stay hoping to get some wages. Um, they stay waiting, as Elsa did, for some kind of new contact to come into her life. Um, and she finally did pick the phone up one day and she called back home because she didn't know who to call in the United States. And her family in Africa put her in touch with a friend in the D.C. area who happened to be a radio personality, a radio DJ um, from her home country. And they hatched an escape plan for her. um, And... On the appointed day, she she left the apartment pretending to bring out the garbage um, when really what she had were, were the only set of street clothes um, that she owned in the in the garbage. Um, and she left getting into into his car. Um, and I think that story really illustrates how uh, trafficked people um, are severely isolated and uh, know that something's wrong, but have very few resources within their grasp to, to resolve it. Well, it's obvious um, that the, those are all forms of coercion indeed, but one of your arguments is that the legal system has trouble recognizing that at times. Yes. Um, I can't tell you how many attorneys I met across the country who had both trafficked clients, so clients um, that had indeed received a T visa, but also had other clients that they they know their situations rose to the occasion of trafficking, but that they just don't either have the evidence or the clients aren't using language that indicates force, fraud, or or coercion. Um, So the cases didn't move forward as trafficking cases. Um, The complicated um, bit about the trafficking law, the TVPA, is that it allows for um, demonstrating emotional harm or, you know, psychological abuse. It doesn't require proof of physical um, abuse. In fact, when we think of Elsa in that apartment in the sky, she wasn't locked in. There wasn't a thug at the door with a gun. This isn't a situation of of chains and locks. Um, So it was up to her lawyer to prove how terrified she was to walk out that door and attorneys um you know really have 
been stymied despite the allowance in the TVPA to um, provide assistance for um, psychological coercion. Um, it still has been difficult to to win these T visas. And frankly, many attorneys around the country, rather than have their clients denied, have applied for other forms of immigration relief, um, such as for a U visa, which generally are visas um, that... Uh, clients who are in situations of domestic abuse apply for. And what we do know is that the cap for U visas is met every year, which is 15,000. So we can, we can begin to see that there likely are a lot of um, cases that would be trafficking cases that their lawyers are um, using the U visa instead. Fascinating. Um, let's talk a little bit about gender, Denise. Um, tell us about the gendered migration patterns that you took note of. Right. So um, I met T visa recipients, those who the U.S. government deemed were trafficked, who came from all over the world and were trafficked into all different kinds of labor sectors. So restaurant work, domestic work, agriculture, sex work, um, elder care work. Um, And what we know with any kind of migration patterns to the United States is that gender plays a significant role. So a number of those who have been trafficked into agriculture have been men, and a number of those who have been trafficked into domestic work have been women. Um, And gender also shapes the different forms of abuse and um, power uh, that have been used over um, trafficked individuals. Um, So, for example, Maria, whose story opens the book um, with her karaoke machine, um, she, Maria, is from the Philippines and she... um, she uses singing as a as a stress buster as a you know as a way to to let off steam but also to really lament um how long she's been on the road over well the course of her son's entire life she left him when he was a baby um and she set out as many filipina women do to work as a domestic first in the middle east um And uh, eventually she came to the United States with one of her employers. So Maria sets out in the global economy as so many women have done from her country. So in this way, we see these gendered patterns of of out-migration. But her abusers also um, had certain gendered... um, power dynamics in their treatment of her. They really infantilized her and humiliated her um, and um, told her over and over how um, stupid and worthless she was. Um, They uh, would only give her scraps from the table to eat um, and sometimes had her um, eat uh, off the floor. So she endured... um, horrific abuse. Um, and 
what's I think really important to understand is that all the individuals I met are highly resourced. They are the ones who cobbled together the resources, the funding um, to set out, to put into motion um, their migration strategy. They're the ones who were able to get the resources together to pay the recruiters, or they're the ones who had the guts to say yes to the family that was um, inviting them to work for them in Saudi Arabia. Um, And Maria was no exception. Uh, And I think that the the traffic people I met um, all experienced um, what I think of as a tipping point where on one hand, their treatment looks just like it did um, in the same jobs that they occupied back at home. In Maria's case, she was used to being um, treated like uh, a subordinate by the wealthy and powerful family she um, had worked for as a domestic and a childcare provider. But when the family in the United States um, embarked on this systematic humiliation um, and also the denial of food um, and forcing her to you know, be on call for the children 24 hours a day. Maria knew this was wrong. She knew this was different. Um, and this was a, this was a tipping point. Um, I do think that what lawyers then have to show is that these individuals, no matter how savvy and resourceful and risk-taking, um, they may not have had experience making demands on uh, their employers before. Um, and the when employers begin to um, abuse with, with such cruelty, um, it can feel that the worker has no place to turn. I actually think that some of the abuse inside families can be the most suffocating because if you are the only person in that house um, who is the worker, you don't have anyone else um, to confide in uh, because everyone, you know, the the family is is all um, complicit. Correct. And in contrast to what you describe in chapter one about, um, for example, the unregulated workplaces like the Central Valley in California, um, where uh, despite uh, horrible abuses and exploitation, there is a a sense of working together with co-ethnics or having people around you in the field, right? Um, At the same time, you, you mention in chapter one that some of these unregulated workplaces like the Central Valley are, are more dangerous for undocumented and abused workers. And can you explain this paradox for us? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned earlier, I traveled the country to meet the T visa winners, the T visa recipients. And I met them, I should spell out, I met them through their social workers and attorneys, um, there are no 
communities of trafficked people. They're not resettled in any one place like refugees are. Um, so I, I very much had to rely on introductions from um, their social workers and attorneys. Um, some of those T visa recipients are activists themselves now and leaders in their communities and are very involved in different community-based organizations. So I spent um, a great deal of time at these community-based organizations um, and in addition um, met leaders in these uh, in various migrant communities um, to begin to understand the the kinds of everyday forms of abuse that unfold. Um, and I argue in the book that it's in these low-wage workplaces like agriculture um, where sometimes it's hard to see if everyone is um, not getting treated um, well. Um, how do you separate lousy work from really lousy work t- to um, from... Um, work that rises to the occasion of trafficking. And in some places in the country, um, particularly in isolated places where agricultural workers are using, um, it seems as if organizers talk about how, um, you know, exploitation is just, is just rampant. But paradoxically, um, <laughs> they've also argued that as workers who don't have documentation in the U.S. Um, strive to remain unnoticed by ICE, which is Immigration Customs Enforcement, that in some ways they'd rather work for less pay and some, if you will, mild forms of exploitation like wage theft in isolated areas uh, where they know ICE is not likely to come than to live and work in places where there have been uh, where there has been a, a large ice presence, um, and the large ba- the the backdrop to the book um, is this um, is our punitive immigration regime. As you know, we just passed in April the two million mark of um, individuals who have been deported um, since President Obama took office. And as you know, we have a series of state and local laws uh, that um, empower local law enforcement to enforce immigration law, like 287G agreements um, and Arizona-style state laws. And as you know, Once somebody is found to be undocumented by law enforcement in this country, um, there's no going back. And many, particularly those who can't pay pay bond, um, end up detained and in some kind of proceedings on their way to deportation. It is in this environment that workers who experience some abuse that they think they can tolerate keep on working and tolerating it. Many workers, many migrant workers in the United States have terrific debts. They have debts to their families back home who financed them getting here. They have debts to international recruiters. And then those who are in situations of trafficking find themselves in often in a situation of trumped-up debts or bogus debts 
um, that their traffickers tell them that they have. Uh, all of these conditions, both our lack of immigration, uh, uh, our lack of uh, any kind of uh, immigration relief, um, and the these m- monumental um, border crossing debts that individuals endure, and then you know families that are waiting for remittances on the other end. Um, this all conspires to keep uh, workers um, normalizing in many instances, you know, some some forms of exploitation. Denise, is this situation what the term Juan Crow was invented to describe? Well, um, there have been more reports than I can count, particularly from fantastic outfits like the Southern Poverty Law Center that for um, decades have been showing the systematic exploitation of um, particularly brown workers um, in the South. And um, the Southern Poverty Law Center um, has used that term, uh, Juan Crow, as have a a number of other um, civil rights organizations to really emphasize the continuing um, kind of racial profiling that has gone on and systematic discrimination based on race um, from uh, the Jim Crow era. And there are um, some real striking quotes in a number of Southern Poverty Law Center reports where um, migrant workers talk about not feeling like they can go anywhere um, without being, um, uh, without risking uh, being profiled and possibly um, picked up by the police. How do you explain this increase in workplace raids and deportations under a Democratic president, Barack Obama? I can't explain it. Um, The policies around immigration have been um, really brutal. And I, this is why I cannot delink the very, um, the real paltry number of T visas that we've given out under 4,014 years. Um, I can't delink this from this uh, larger immigration uh, vacuum where we have at least 11 million people working and living in the shadows. Um, It is shameful that we've only given out 4,000 T visas and it is shameful that members of the community where I live in Northern Virginia and possibly where you live um, in Houston, Julie, members of our communities fear going to work. They fear picking up their kids from school. Um, We cannot fight trafficking in this environment of rampant and unfettered um, employer exploitation and intimidation because these employers know they can uh, exploit with impunity. Um, Same with landlords. Um, We just, we, we have 
um, one set of government policies that seeks to protect exceptions to our immigration regime, uh, trafficked individuals. Um, and then on the other hand, we have this other set of policies that um, is the mandate is to find and to um, to deport uh, individuals who are here without without status. Okay, on um, on page forty three, you talk about um, you give some figures on numbers of persons trafficked into the U.S. every year, and you estimate that at somewhere between fourteen thousand and to 18,000 persons trafficked into the U.S. every year. I just want to make sure I'm clear on what that means. Um, when, we, when we talk again about persons trafficked, we're talking about not particular. well, we have clandestine immigrants who come on their own, right? Do you count them into that trafficking statistic, or is it only those who have sought help to, to immigrate? Right. Well, a couple of things. So, um, there are many um, individuals who end up in a situation of trafficking, right, which, again, is extreme abuse, which rises to the occasion of force, fraud, or coercion. There are many individuals who have paid smugglers to, to come to the United States. Smuggling is not trafficking. Okay. Trafficking happens when you're, you're, you work under a situation of coercion. So the mere act of paying somebody to come here, right, that is, that's travel. That's not, that's not trafficking. Um, the figure you quoted, Julie, the uh, 14,500 to 17,500 figure is an estimate by the U.S. government, mm-hmm. um, which I think, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it gives your listeners a sense of, how many folks are estimated to be in a situation of extreme labor abuse um, in any given year? And and again, we have to um, bookend that figure with that with the four thousand T visas given out in in fourteen years. The reality is is that um, labor organizers and attorneys around the country. Um, believe that figure to be higher um, when we see how many work sites are unprotected and unregulated. Yes, indeed. So let's shift the conversation to um, a discussion of forced labor in sex work, which is um, one of your one of your main arguments of the book, I think, uh, is, is uh, shaped around this question of prostitution and sex work. Um, and uh, t- tell us about this particular aspect in Chapter 1. Um, yes, I'm very clear that trafficking into forced labor happens in all labor sectors. Um, and under the Bush administration, uh, trafficking into all labor sectors became conflated with trafficking into sex trafficking. Um, in other words, trafficking into one labor sector only. In 2004, under the Bush administration, 58 of the 59 cases of trafficking that were brought forth for prosecution involved sex. Um, so beginning with the fight against trafficking in the United States, 
we really saw a fight against the sex sector. And as you could imagine, um, this assault on the sex sector caught up in it a number of individuals who want to work in the sex sector who are not laboring in a situation of extreme abuse. Um, and ever since this, uh, the beginnings of fighting trafficking, I think we've, we've, by only focusing on this one labor sector, to the detriment of um, looking for exploited agricultural workers, looking for exploited domestic workers, I think we've lost a lot of time. Um, just to be very specific, um, a number of task forces were set up in communities around the country, task forces that brought together law enforcement and um, first responders like um, emergency room personnel, um, housing inspectors, and then also um, uh, social workers. Um, the law enforcement involved almost all um come from uh, vice squads. So what we've been doing is really only focusing on um, raiding and finding um, workers in, in one sex sector. Um, the discussions over is sex work ever a form of work is just a flashpoint um, it's a flashpoint in the feminist movement. It's a flashpoint across party lines. Um, the net fallout has been, uh, you know, where we are today with only 4,000, under 4,000 people um, being deemed uh, trafficked by, by the U.S. government. And indeed, your, your argument, if I've read it correctly, is that this U.S. policy that focuses on ending demand for sex work um, forces vulnerable sex workers to go further underground. And it seems that you, you wish instead to advocate a sex workers' rights perspective instead. Can you explain? Right. So this idea of end demand is, um, is a mantra that is following a law that was enacted in 1999 in Sweden. Um, that criminalizes not the workers, but the clients. The sex worker um, movement in Sweden has been vociferously vocal and clear, ha as had the peer review research on this so-called end-demand approach, that um, sex workers themselves have borne the brunt of the... Uh, the these sets of policies that make it more difficult to workers to vet their clients ahead of time so that they can say, stay safe. Um, it's pushed sex workers to work more in the shadows. Um, in the United States, sec the sex worker mo rights movement has also been very clear about the dangers of this approach. Um, and, I mean, we see this kind of thinking undergirding condom confiscation um, as that the police use as evidence of um, intent to solicit. 
And Human Rights Watch, for example, did a report on um, the drop in safe sex practices amongst um, the sex working community in New York when New York instituted um, using, you know, condoms as um, evidence of, of prostitution. Um, and I mean, also just from a common sense standpoint, I mean, trying to end demand for paid sex doesn't really pass the smell test. It's just folly to think that we're going to somehow end demand for commercial sex. What we need instead is to listen to the workers themselves in these various sex sectors. Listen to farm workers about the pesticides that they're exposed to and what needs to be done to reduce exposure. We need to listen to sex workers about what increases their um, likelihood of being um, not paid or exposed to unsafe sex or um, at risk for being um, uh, beaten up. Um, and instead, we've got this um, this uh, law and order approach that pushes workers um, further underground. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about life after forced labor, which is the thrust of chapters three and four. Can you tell us about what you wanted to achieve in these chapters and particularly what distinguishes the longer term challenges in chapter four called living the possible. Um, These longer term challenges that formerly trafficked individuals face compared to their immediate struggles after what I would call their liberation. Yeah. Well, I'm glad um, you've asked about life after trafficking, um, since that was uh, the focus of, of the book. Um, I do think about life after in in terms of the immediate aftermath um, and the craziness and the chaos of exiting um, forced labor, but then the longer term struggles, which one attorney in New York City calls a trafficking plus. So first, immediately um, when individuals leave a situation where they haven't been paid, their self-esteem has been crushed, um, they probably know no one um, in the United States, um, they really enter uh, a time of what one woman, Tatiana, who had been um, trafficked into a strip club in the Midwest describes as a moment of confusion and fog. She describes seeing through a veil. Um, and I think that's so, um, you know, achingly um, illustrative of how um, it's really hard for these uh, men and women to make sense of the world. Um, and many describe not wanting to tell the attorneys or FBI agents or even the social workers anything about what happened because they um, have been well lied to by their abusers um, over um, months or sometimes years. I'm told about how the police will um, abuse them, rape them, you know, lock them away without a trial. Um, They have a serious distrust of the U.S. justice system, um, often the 
this form of these forms of abuse are exactly how their own corrupt police force or um, the justice system would work in their home country. So they're acting again um, with a great degree of um, sense. Um, uh, they there's a serious housing shortage um, for um, trafficked persons. So there's only one shelter in the United States in Los Angeles that's dedicated to um, housing trafficked persons. And even then, it's only for women. Um, So we do, unfortunately, see a number of men and women being housed in homeless shelters and domestic violence shelters. Um, which are really quite ill-fitting for this particular population. Um, They don't have anything. Eliza from the Philippines describes not even having a change of underwear. So they become immediately dependent and beholden on um, everyone around them. Um, And they don't know who to trust, right? They've had um, their, their... trust um, so compromised and um, so taken advantage of um, by their abuser that um, their instincts tell them uh, to not to not take a leap of faith um, and trust those around them. So it's a very um, complicated time. One doctor in Los Angeles who works with the clients at that shelter even goes so far as to say she doesn't think that trafficked individuals are even free when they immediately leave because there's, they're just, they're left with so little. Um, and in terms of over time, this idea of trafficking plus, um, I found that, um, the trafficking assistance regime. So the social benefits that they receive like refugees to, um, it, ends in about a year. So it's the rare individual who is able to go from uh, this housing, you know, in a, the, be, be living in a, a homeless shelter to all of a sudden um, having enough money to move into a decent house. Um, many enter the workforce in the same industry that they into which they had been trafficked, so generally low wage, and they're treading water, Julie. They're really living on poverty's edge. And what I found is that um, they face setbacks as do anyone in the low wage economy, um, but they have, I think, fewer resources than other low wage workers. They're building all their new relationships from scratch. They don't have family here. Um, so they can't even rely on help with, let's say, um, when they eventually have kids or if they're reunited with their kids, which the T-Visa allows for dependents to um, come to the United States. They they don't have even you know a family member to share babysitting with. Um, so they are they they face the same struggles as their migrant neighbors and coworkers and friends, but without um, an established deep um, community and uh, and uh, social networks. Mm-hmm. 
And here again, you're you're talking about the happy few who have received these T visas and obtained some kind of normalization and legalization of their situation. But one of the main arguments of your book, I believe, is that this this is to the exclusion of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other uh, workers living in in conditions of extreme abuse or forced labor. Yes. Yeah, so um, at the end of the book, I have a series of policy recommendations that don't just help trafficked people, but lift all boats. So, for example, um, I recommend uh, rescinding diplomatic immunity for diplomats who abuse workers in their employ. Probably the biggest trafficking case that hit the news um, in the past year was the Indian consul um, who was um, abusing her uh, one of her employees, Sangeeta Richard, um, and that set off a diplomatic um, firestorm. Um, I, also, I already recommended that we should be closing the loophole um, in the Fair Labor Standard Act that leaves out agricultural workers and workers in home, in working in homes, and we need to we need to regulate um, the international recruiting mechanisms for temporary workers, or what um, gets uh, talked about as guest workers here. Um, we also need to support domestic worker bill of rights in local and state legislatures. Um, and I think quite importantly, we need to lobby for protection for whistleblowers. Right now, if you are working, let's say, in a crew of strawberry pickers and you think that um, some of the workers in your crew are not getting paid or maybe um, a woman is getting sexually assaulted, um, in other words, the front lines often of fighting trafficking, of seeing someone who's severely abused is by other workers. Well, if they too are undocumented, um, they have every incentive to not report this, to not go toe-to-toe with their employer who could not only fire them, but report them to Immigration Customs Enforcement as well. So we need whistleblower protection um, from uh, fear of retaliation. And there is a piece of legislation called the Power Act, which, which does just that. Talk about this scholarly activism, Denise, if you will, before we conclude, this dialectic between theory and action. You're a professor, you're a scholar, you're, you're an academic. How do you see um, your stretch into advo- advocacy as well? I don't think you can write about um, anything touching on low-wage work and um, individuals laboring without um, documentation in this country and not see the, um, the brutality of our, um, deportation regime and to not, um, make the connections to, between individual stories of trying to stay ahead of poverty and uh, stay ahead of being, um, deported, um, and and not you know fight for immigration reform. Um, I just I also feel um, that it's been a great privilege to spend the past twenty years or so now um, first in the Dominican Republic watching um, 
Dominican sex worker peer educators advocate on their own behalf and now um, to go to community meetings throughout the country and watch worker advocates um, uh, advocate on their own behalf. Um, And I think it's my job as an anthropologist to tell their stories and to tell their their stories of their own activism, right? Um, And what's really exciting, Julie, is in the past two years, um, a national survivor network of trafficking survivors has emerged. And they are now taking the podium at the same conferences that I go to. And they're telling um, policymakers what needs um, to change. They're not just giving witness to their stories of life in trafficking and telling the same, um, if you will, uh, narratives of victimhood, but instead are um, trying to shape policy. They're testifying in local and national legislative venues. Um, and I think on a, on a deeply critical level, they're now um, able to meet one another through this confidential survivor network, through a confidential Facebook page and um, uh, uh, conference calls that they have so that those who are just coming into um, the trafficking uh, assistance regime, they're not alone. Um, So this is incredibly exciting. It's very different than 10 years ago when I met some of the first T visa recipients in the country and they were completely alone and were not introduced to other trafficking clients by their social workers or attorneys because of issues of confidentiality. And now social workers and attorneys are able to turn to their new clients and say, there is this national survivor network. Would you like to tap into to meeting some of them? So this is this is very, very exciting. It's clearly new and important. And something else I've noticed that is, that is new and seemingly important is this uh, willingness of undocumented and exploited workers to come out into the open um, in, in demonstrations and protests in Washington and elsewhere. In the last few years, I think I've noticed it, um, demanding better working conditions and normalization of their legal status. So I wonder... What accounts for that, this paradigm shift of coming out of the shadows? At the same time, we have President Obama, right, with the threat of deportation increased enormously since his his term, and yet this willingness to step out of the shadows. How do you see that? I think it's precisely because with the two million mark, um, it's it's just gone too far. Um, People have been extraordinarily courageous, including some of my own students. I marched with them from the front gates of Georgetown down to the park outside of the White House back in April when when the country ignited and took to the streets and said not one more deportation. Um, I think in particular, young people um, have been extraordinarily uh, um, in the forefront and um, courageous to um, wage this battle. Um, The so-called dreamers um, who have been extraordinarily creative um, and... um, uh, 
eloquent in their um, demands for a human, a just, um, uh, you know, reform. Um, I think that a lot of individuals in the country right now who didn't think immigration was their issue, they're now waking up and they're looking around their own communities and they're seeing that vibrant members of their own communities are under assault um, and that also families have been separated, that there are um, um, just heartbreaking stories of um, families that have loved ones who are, you know, in detention or have been deported. Um, And I think a lot of, um, individuals and communities across America, they don't want this to be their community. Well, thank you so much, Denise, for sharing with us your latest book today, Life Interrupted. Just to conclude, will you you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now or next? Yeah, um, well, in fact, I wanted to um, continue looking at how individuals endure under this immigration regime. And I'm going to be interviewing families who are separated by detention and deportation. Very good. Well, thank you again, Denise Brennan, for, sh- for spending some time with us today to talk about Life Interrupted. Life Interrupted. 